MSW Media. News was Daily beans, daily beans, daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, October 8th, 2020. Today, Trump second guesses blackmailing Americans and reverses course on an economic stimulus plan ahead of the election. The Department of Justice admits to adding dates to Peter Strzok and Andy McCabe's FBI notes in the Flynn case. The Second Circuit rules against Trump again in the Mazars tax case subpoena issued by the Manhattan District Attorney. The White House admits Trump wasn't tested daily. Uh, whistleblower Rick Bright resigns. The New York Times endorses Joe Biden and Facebook bans all QAnon accounts. I'm your host, A.G. A big show today. In addition to the headlines I just read, we have a very late breaking story from The New York Times. Um, it just came in late last night, and that is about uh, what Jeff Sessions and Rod Rosenstein had decided about family separation at the border. It's absolutely horrific. It'll be the lead today. I'll also be speaking with Andrew Torres today from the Opening Arguments podcast about falsified FBI documents in the Flynn case provided by the U.S. attorney from the Eastern District of Missouri. Uh, That's Jeffrey Jensen, as well as the Second Circuit Court's ruling that Trump is a stupid criminal. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, I will also have the headlines for you, uh, the rest of the headlines, news from under the radar. We'll wrap it up with the good news today. Tomorrow, I will be discussing the 40-page motion to recuse that Sidney Powell just filed in the Flynn case. I need a little time to go over that. It's 40 pages long. I'm sure it's ridiculous. And we'll be speaking with uh, Qasem Rashid about his opponent in Virginia's 1st District for U.S. House of Representatives. And we will have the good news tomorrow with Amy Carrero. That's all on the docket for tomorrow. And for patrons abroad, in addition to our regular happy hour this week at 4 p.m. Pacific time this Friday... I'm adding a one-hour live stream brunch on Saturday at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. That is for patrons only. Additionally, for patrons, we will have Episode 6 of the Mary Trump Book Club with myself and Dana Goldberg coming out this Saturday. And big surprise, I'm happy to announce we will be joined by Mary Trump herself for an epilogue, Episode 7 of the Book Club for Patrons. She will field your questions about current events and the book. And we will be sending our patrons a message and posting on Patreon and Supercast for you to be able to submit your questions for Mary. Um, so that is what's going on. Uh, if you want to become a patron, head to patreon.com slash the daily beans. It's only $3 a month. You get all that and the episodes ad free and early our newsletter with my personal research notes. And of course, access to the book club. We have a lot of news to get to. So let's hit the hot notes, hot notes, the lead story today. Um, and content warning. This is about children in concentration camps. This comes from the New York Times today. I'm just going to read it. The five U.S. attorneys, uh, along with uh, five U.S. attorneys along the border with Mexico, including three appointed by Trump, recoiled in May 2018 against an order to prosecute all undocumented immigrants, even if it meant separating children from their parents. They told top Justice Department officials they were deeply concerned about the children's welfare. But the attorney general at the time, Jeff Sessions, our racist possum, made it clear what Mr. Trump wanted on a conference call later that afternoon, according to a two-year inquiry by the Justice Department's Inspector General, Horowitz, uh, about Mr. Trump's zero-tolerance family separation policy. We need to take away children, Mr. Sessions told the prosecutors. One added in his shorthand, if care about kids don't bring them in, we won't give amnesty to people with kids. So this is deterrence based on cruelty. 
Rod Rosenstein, Deputy Attorney General, went further in a second call about a week later telling five of the five prosecutors that it did not matter how young the children were. He said that government lawyers should not have refused to prosecute two cases simply because the children were barely more than infants. Quote, those two cases should have not should not have been declined. Uh, that's John Bash, the departing U.S. attorney in western Texas. He wrote that to his staff immediately after the call um, with Rosenstein. Mr. Bash declined the cases, but Mr. Rosenstein had overruled him. Quote, per the AG's policy, we should not be categorically declining immigration prosecution of adults in family units because of the age of the child. The Justice Department's top officials were a driving force behind the policy that spurred the separation of thousands of families, many of them fleeing violence as, as seeking asylum as refugees from Central America. Um, and this is according to the draft report of the results of the investigation by Michael Horowitz, Inspector General for Department of Justice. Separation of migrant children from their parents, sometimes for months, was at the heart of Trump administration's assault on immigration. But the fierce backlash when the administration struggled to reunite the children turned into one of the biggest policy debacles of this president's term. Though Mr. Sessions sought to distance himself from the policy, allowing Trump and Homeland Security to largely be blamed, he and other top law enforcement officials understood that zero tolerance meant that migrant families would be separated and wanted that to happen because they believed it would deter future illegal immigration. That's according to the inspector general. Quote, the department's single-minded focus on increasing prosecutions came at the expense of careful and effective implementation of the policy, especially with regard to prosecution of family unit adults and the resulting child separations. That's from the report, the draft report, citing more than 45 interviews with key officials, emails and other documents, provides the most complete look at the discussion inside the Justice Department about the family separation policy and how it was developed and pushed and ultimately carried out with little concern for the children. This article is based on a review, this New York Times article is based on a review of the 86-page draft report and interviews with three government officials who read it in recent months and described its conclusions and many of the details in it. The officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity because they had not been authorized to discuss it publicly cautioned that the final report could change. Yeah, no shit. Before publishing the findings, the inspector general officially typically provides draft copies to the DOJ and leadership and others mentioned in the reports to ensure they're accurate. Horowitz has been preparing to release his report since late summer, according to a person familiar with it, though the process allowing for responses from current and former department officials whose conduct is under scrutiny is likely to delay its release until after the election. Mr. Sessions refused to be interviewed. The report noted Mr. Rosenstein, who is now a lawyer in private practice, defended himself in, the inter in an interview with investigators in response to questioning about his role. This is according to two officials. Rosenstein's former office submitted a 64-page response. Quote, if any United States attorney ever charged a defendant they did not personally believe warranted prosecution, they violated their oath of office. Mr. Rosenstein said in a statement, I never ordered anyone to prosecute a case. Hmm. So they were just following orders. I see. Gene Hamilton, a top lawyer and ally of Stephen Miller, the architect of the president's assault on immigration, argued in a 32-page response that the Justice Department officials merely took direction from the president. Mr. Hamilton cited an April 3, 2018 meeting with uh, Jeff Sessions, the Homeland Security Secretary at the time, Kirsten Nielsen, and others in which the president ranted and was on a tirade demanding as many prosecutions as possible. Hamilton declined to comment for the article, as did Mr. Horowitz's office. Sessions did not respond. Uh, Alexa Vance, a spokeswoman for the Justice Department, disputed the draft report and said the Homeland Security Department refers cases for prosecution. Quote, the draft report relied on for this article contains numerous factual errors. 
She said, while DOJ is responsible for the prosecution of defendants, it had no role in tracking or providing custodial care to the children of defendants. Finally, both the timing and misleading content of this leak raised troubling questions about the motivations. The draft report also documented other revelations that had not previously been known before. Number number one here, government prosecutors reacted with alarm at the separation of children from their parents during a secret 2017 pilot program along the Mexican border in Texas. Quote, we have now... Uh, heard of us taking breastfeeding defendants' moms away from their infants. One government prosecutor wrote to his superiors, I did not believe this until I looked at the duty log. Number two, Border Patrol officers missed serious felony cases because they were stretched too thin by the zero-tolerance policy requiring them to detain and prosecute all of the misdemeanor illegal entry cases. One Texas prosecutor warned top Justice Department officials in 2018 that sex offenders were released as a result sex offenders were released because everyone was trying to take these kids away from their parents. Senior Justice Department officials viewed the welfare of the children as the responsibility of other agencies and their duty as tracking the parents. I just don't see that as a DOJ equity, according to Rosenstein. And he told the inspector general, it's not our job to take care of these children. The failure to inform the U.S. Marshals Service before announcing the zero-tolerance policy led to serious overcrowding and budget overruns. The marshals were forced to cut back on serving warrants in other cases, saying that when you take away manpower, you can't make a safe arrest. For two years, Ms. Nielsen took the brunt of public criticism for separating migrant families because of her decision to refer adults crossing the border illegally with children for prosecution. A day after the president's retreat, Mr. Sessions distanced his department, from the decision, telling CBN News, we never really intended to separate children. That was false, according to the draft report, and made clear from the policy's earliest days in a five-month test along borders in Texas. Justice Department officials understood and encouraged the separation of children as an expected part of the desire to prosecute all undocumented border crossers. Quoted is the hope that this separation will act as a deterrent to parents bringing their children into harsh circumstances that are present when trying to enter the United States illegally. That's from a Border Patrol official on October 28, 2017, to the U.S. Attorney in New Mexico. After the pilot program ended in Texas, the report says Mr. Sessions, Mr. Hamilton, and Mr. Rosenstein all pushed aggressively to expand the practice across the entire border with help from prosecutors. In a briefing two days after Christmas in 2017, top DOJ officials asked Mr. Bash for statistics from the pilot program conducted by his predecessor that could be used to develop, quote, nationwide prosecution guidelines. Mr. Bash, a former White House advisor, did not receive a follow-up request for the information, thinking that the idea had been abandoned, and he did not provide it. By April 2018, Sessions nonetheless moved to enact the zero-tolerance policy on the entire border with Mexico. Rosenstein told the inspector general that Sessions understood what the consequences were. Quote, the AG's goal was to create a more effective deterrent so that everyone would believe they had a risk of being prosecuted. The Justice Department still needed to persuade Ms. Nielsen to refer all families for prosecution, which she was resisting. The draft report says a pressure campaign culminated in a May 3rd meeting in which Mr. Sessions insisted that Customs and Border Patrol uh, begin referring all those cases to prosecutors. A note from Mr. Hamilton to Mr. Sessions before the meeting indicated, you should lead this discussion. Quote, we vigorously enforce our criminal immigration laws to ensure there are consequences for illegal actions and to deter future illegal immigration, Mr. Sessions planned to say, according to the report. That means an illegal alien should not get a free pass just because he or she crosses the border illegally with a child. When the group voted by show of hands to proceed, Ms. Nielsen's was the only one who kept her hand down. 
The next day, Ms. Nielsen backed down, signing a memo referring all adults for prosecution and clearing the way for children to be separated. The decision roiled the prosecutors along the border. In Arizona, Elizabeth Strange, the acting U.S. attorney, led a minor rebellion, temporarily declining six cases, citing concerns for the children. That prompted a rebuke from top Justice Department officials who demanded to know why would they be declining these cases. Justice Department officials have repeatedly claimed that they thought the adults would be prosecuted and reunited with their children within hours. But the inspector in general found a memo informing top officials that sentences for adults ranged from 3 to 14 days, making it all but certain that children would be sent to the custody of officials at Health and Human Services for long periods of time. Quote, we found no evidence before or after receipt of the memo that DOJ leaders sought to expedite the process for completing sentencing in order to facilitate reunification. That's from the inspector general. Overall, Horowitz concluded in the draft, Mr. Sessions and other senior department officials were aware the full implementation of the zero tolerance policy would result in criminal deferrals by DHS of adults who entered the country illegally with children and that the prosecution of these uh, family unit adults would result in children being separated from families. That's uh, Hague level shit right there. And it's absolutely disgusting. Um, Like I'm trembling with anger over that. Um, So vote, please. Also, in a continuation of what I discussed yesterday with Barb McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, University of Michigan law professor and MSNBC legal analyst. uh, Yesterday on the show, we talked about how Bill Barr and the Department of Justice violated not only the longstanding policy of not announcing or even acknowledging open and ongoing investigations, but Barr's memo that he wrote himself that said nothing should come out that could impact the outcome of an election. What I've just learned from ProPublica uh, is that just this past Friday, after Barr and the Department of Justice faced criticism for announcing the investigation into the, you know, the nine ballots found in the river in Pennsylvania or whatever, that the Department of Justice on Friday sent out an email saying, if a U.S. attorney's office suspects election fraud that involves postal workers or military employees, federal investigators will be allowed to take the public to take public investigative steps before the polls close, even if those actions risk affecting the outcome of the election. Specifically citing both postal workers and the military is noteworthy because those are two things involved in this particular nine-ballot investigation that was cleared by Pennsylvania, by the way, as not fraud. And the one that Barr and the Department of Justice uh, announced and came under fire for. Yet this is another example of the Trump administration breaking the law and then trying to fix it by changing policy after the fact. They did this to me. Personally, after they investigated my podcast and moved my job across the country, said I had to move or be fired, when I asked for telework in the meantime, um, they tried to apply extremely restrictive telework rules. Like, I, I couldn't be away from my computer for five minutes. I had to answer all emails within 10 minutes. I had to answer all instant messages within two minutes. I had to pick up my phone within five rings. It can't be allowed to go to voicemail. Absolutely ridiculous, out-of-bounds, uh, retaliatory telework rules. And they didn't have anyone else in my office have to follow these rules. So when my lawyers and I pointed that out and we filed an EEO complaint for retaliation, then they sent out an email to everyone else in the office saying, here's your new rules, retroactively to try to cover their asses. This administration has done this on so many occasions, it's, it's impossible to count. Remember when they tried to change the rules saying the president can withhold congressionally appropriated aid during the impeachment hearings to try to make it legal for Trump to have withheld the money earmarked for Ukraine. And that was after the GAO found out that he had violated the Impoundment Control Act. That's what they do. 
they fuck shit up and then they write rules ex post facto and say, oh, no, we have this rule now. So what he did a month ago that was illegal is totally, totally cool, totally legal and totally cool now. Uh, also in the news, Trump has decided that blackmailing Americans was a bad idea, and he's reversed course on an economic stimulus plan ahead of the election. As we know, in a series of tweets last night, Trump said he was calling off all negotiations for a stimulus package until after the election, which, if I win, I'll immediately sign. Well, that didn't go over so well. So now he's tweeted that he will sign stimulus uh, stuff, but to fund the airlines, fund the Paycheck Protection Program, and to send $1,200 to everyone. He is out of his mind. As, as, as one of my friends said, it seems that Trump on steroids is just Trump on steroids. And after months of crowded events and maskless encounters, a growing number of top government officials, including Trump and their close contacts, have tested positive. The fault for the outbreak lies in no small part with an ill-conceived disease prevention strategy at the White House. From the early days of the pandemic, federal officials have relied too heavily on one company's rapid tests. That's the Abbott Company rapid test results with little or no mechanism to identify and contain cases that fell through the diagnostic cracks. Quote, it seems the White House put all their eggs in one basket, testing. That's from Dr. Reg- uh, Megan Ranny, an emergency medicine physician at Brown University. She says, but there's no single strategy, no single thing we can do to be safe. It has to be multimodal. Other health experts noted that the tests deployed by the White House, manufactured by Abbott, were given emergency clearance by the FDA only for people within the first seven days of symptoms. But they were used incorrectly to screen people who were not showing signs of illness. Such off-label use further compromised a strategy that presumably was designed to keep leading officials safe from the pandemic. The the pandemic that's killed 211,000 Americans. Nevertheless, shortly after Abbott, uh, Abbott's ID Now test received emergency approval in the spring, the White House adopted its rapid screening tool for staff members and visitors who, claim in, who came into close contact with the president. Sometime around the end of August and early September, the White House switched to using the Binax Now, a, sim- a similarly quick test that hunts for bits of coronavirus protein rather than viral RNA. So, sent out over a million tests that you can't use on asymptomatic people and use them on asymptomatic people. Probably the reason there's a huge outbreak in the White House right now. Add that to the fact we learned from the New York Times that Trump was not being tested daily, despite the White House claiming he was. The reasoning behind the lack of testing was unclear, and questions remain about whether he'd been tested before the September 29th presidential debate. Trump announced that he had tested positive for the new coronavirus in the early hours of Friday morning and was rushed to Walter Reed later that day. Though he has since returned to the White House, as we know, his aides continue to test positive for the virus, Stephen Miller being the latest. In all, 14 White House staff members have tested positive. The ousted director of the office involved in developing a coronavirus vaccine has now resigned from his post at the NIH, National Institutes of Health, charging that the Trump administration ignores scientific expertise, overrules public health guidance, and disrespects career scientists. Rick Bright, that's who it is. He filed an extensive whistleblower complaint this spring alleging that his early warnings about COVID were ignored and that his caution about hydroxychloroquine led to his removal. And he's now exiting the government uh, after being sidelined. Quote, although not allowed at NIH to utilize his expertise in vaccines or therapeutics, Dr. Bright developed a plan to implement a robust national testing infrastructure, which emphasized the critical need to provide screening tests in asymptomatic individuals and to provide services to underserved populations disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. NIH leadership declined to support Dr. Bright's recommendations because of his political considerations, plain and simple. 
After having his work suppressed for political reasons to the detriment of public health and safety, Dr. Bright was sidelined from doing any further work to combat the coronavirus. And that was the last straw. So he's resigned. Also today, the New York Times has endorsed Joe Biden. The headline, elect Joe Biden, America. That's the New York Times. And also in the news, Facebook said Tuesday it will ban any pages and groups and Instagram accounts representing the conspiracy theory QAnon from its platform. This comes three years after the conspiracy theory began. During those years, QAnon people have embraced a number of different uh, contradictory theories, but the basic false beliefs underlying QAnon are claims that a cabal of politicians and A-list celebrities engage in child sex abuse, eat babies, and a deep state effort to undermine Trump. Last year, the FBI office warned that Q adherents are domestic terrorism threat. Facebook's move will be welcomed by some, but the platform has allowed the conspiracy to grow and spread for three years. It's unbelievable. And finally, two big stories that are actually the lead stories today. Um, but I wanted to segue into the interview. First, the Department of Justice has admitted to handing over falsified FBI notes written by Peter Strzok and Andy McCabe. And the ruling in the Mazars case in the Second Circuit in favor of the Manhattan District Attorney. And I'll be talking about both of those things with Andrew Torres from Opening Arguments, along with uh, some Ken Starr porn stuff. That should be interesting. That'll be right after this break. So stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Today's episode of Daily Beans is brought to you by Magic Spoon. Oh, my God, it's so delicious. Ever since I was a kid, my favorite food's been cereal. I used to sit in front of the TV on Saturday mornings, eat like a whole box, and then drink the delicious milk. But now, as an adult, I've mostly had to give it up because of all the sugar and carbs. But not anymore. Introducing Magic Spoon. Enter Magic Spoon, a cereal so tasty you will not believe. It's made without the sugar, carbs, and guilt. Truly, it's Magic Spoon is so good you won't believe it's healthy. And as Forbes magazine says, with cereal that tastes this good and offers so much nutritional value, as opposed to, well, none, Magic Spoon may be the future of breakfast. And I agree. Magic Spoon cereals amazingly have zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving. It is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, high-protein, and GMO-free. And the best part is it's delicious. With four amazing flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry. It tastes incredible. Too good to be true, but it's not. It's real. I've had it. I've put it in my mouth. It's amazing. My favorite flavor right now is blueberry. It is delicious. And then I drink the blueberry milk after, and I can't believe it's guilt-free. I love it. So go to magicspoon.com slash dailybeans to grab a variety pack and try all four today. Be sure to use our promo code dailybeans at checkout to get free shipping. Magic Spoon is so confident. It is backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No risk. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash dailybeans. Use the code dailybeans for free shipping. And we thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring the pod. All right, everybody, welcome back. Joining me for the interview today, and I know we've had some repeat guests this week. We've had Frank Figalusi a couple of times. It was necessary. And then, of course, today I'll be talking to, again, my friend, real-life lawyer and co-host of the Opening Arguments podcast, Andrew Torres, because holy shit, bro, how are you, first of all? <laughs> well, I am substantially better than I was uh, when I woke up this morning. And today is my birthday, so I choose to view this as the Second Circuit uh, sending me a present. So how are you? Uh, I'm wonderful. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it seems to be a, a good news style day. Um, first of all, we had the uh, Department of Justice hair on fire national security press conference where they said they indicted a couple of 
ISIS terrorists uh, and that the FBI is currently working diligently and uh, to, to investigate all problems and issues going on with ISIS abroad. Because, you know, I mean, I guess I guess we didn't defeat them, like Trump said, but um, that happened. And then we get this uh, information from the Second Circuit. You and I have been following this closely. This is uh, the Mazars case, round two, electric boogaloo. <laughs> uh, because as we know, it went up, you know, Trump said, uh, no one can, uh, investigate a president. And it went all the way up to the Supreme court. Supreme court said, I think seven to two, you're stupid. But if you have a better reason, take it up with the court, went back down to the court with a, a the same reason, uh, but, but <laughs> added that it was too overbroad and burdensome and which is dumb because he doesn't even have to reply to it. Came back up, went to the second circuit, three judge panel and they came back, and that hearing was pretty hilarious. They came back with a decision. Tell us about it. Yeah. So the three-judge panel of the Second Circuit roundly rejected President Trump's arguments as to overbreadth and burden. And, and, and that's all you need to know. And yes, uh, Trump will immediately appeal this to the Supreme Court. But remember, he lost and lost badly in Trump versus Vance. That was a seven two opinion. Do you know, do do I think it's going to be six two for refusing to step in and grant an injunction and, you know, and or uh, sorry, I said injunction. But what I mean is here's what the president would have to do. He would have to petition the Supreme Court not only for cert. Right. To take up the case, but also to stay enforcement of the second court of the Second Circuit's judgment. Right. Otherwise, typically, when you lose on a motion to dismiss. Right. That that means it's over. Right. Like it's it's the end of Ferris Bueller. Like you're you're standing there in the rub going, what are you doing here? Go home. And that's where we are. We are at a point where there is. Once this judgment goes into effect, once the Second Circuit's mandate goes into effect, there is no legal protection. There is no legal instruction telling Mazars not to comply with the subpoena. And because of that, we we know Mazars has said over and over again, and it makes total sense, uh, that they will comply with a valid subpoena if there is no reason for them not to, right? If there is no legal enforcement to the contrary. So that's the uphill battle that Trump faces right now. How we got here is, well, I want to like strain myself, patting myself on the back. But you might recall you and I had an interview after the uh, Vance and Mazar's decisions came out. And I said to you, I think the grand jury in New York will get Trump's tax returns before the election. And uh, and I said, I, 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 I didn't put a hundred percent probability on it, but I said, everybody is saying, oh no, this is going to push it all past the election. And I said, well, it's plausible to me that they could get it before the election. And this is another step in that direction. Is it plausible that they could still run out the clock? Yeah. Like that's, that's still on the table, but everybody who said doom and gloom, you know, ha ha, I was right. And you were wrong. <laughs> well, I think though that in the last case, Vance agreed to stay the enforcement until the appeals expire, uh, which would include SCOTUS. Am I reading that wrong? So I, th I think, but, but only on agreed, uh, on an agreed upon expedited schedule. Was that only for Second Circuit? It seems yeah. to me like it is. it would include the SCOTUS appeal. I re read that uh, as including only 
the appeals as of right to the Second Circuit, right? As as you know, as your listeners know, you do not have an appeal as of right to the Supreme Court. You have you can petition for certiorari, uh, but I, I don't know if if that is the case, then I would expect a statement uh, coming out of Vance's office today, right? To to. Uh, to clarify that that is the case, because the Supreme Court is still on the 90 day uh, extent. Actually, they are still on the 150 day extended deadline to petition for cert because of covid, um, which would be uh, it, there's no way that he agreed to extend it uh, by, you know, six months like that. Uh, five months, I guess I, I should say like that. That seems preposterous to me. But, I, you know. Officials have done preposterous things before, so let's let's keep keep an eye out for that. But but secondly, uh, again, remember there are two components to this, right? Like there is the appeal, right? Uh, but there is also the effect of the Second Circuit's judgment. And reading this opinion, it does not say like the mandate has not yet issued. The mandate is what directs the 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 court to act right the opinion is the written explanation for what's going on right and so the conclusion says we affirm the district court's judgment dismissing the second amendment complaint with prejudice and enforcement of the subpoena is provisionally stayed as specified herein um and uh and i'm going to talk about that interim stay which which comes right before that uh but it it depends on when the mandate issues as to uh, when that judgment takes effect. So right before the conclusion, the Second Circuit says um, that the parties, the parties previously yeah. agreed that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Go ahead. And read so, it. yeah. It, well, no, no, no. You, you, you got it. You were there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it basically says the parties have previously agreed. It should the president seek relief from SCOTUS. Uh, after our instant affirmance of the district court's judgment, district attorney would forbear enforcement of the Mazar subpoena until decisions issued by the Supreme Court denying such a request for interim relief, provided the president complies with a briefing schedule agreed to the parties. Joint letter dated October 2nd, 2020. Um, the briefing schedule is set forth in a letter submitted by the DA to the court uh, September 29th. An interim stay of enforcement of the subpoena under the terms agreed to by the parties is hereby so ordered. So... It seems like the Second Circuit is granting the interim stay, or or am I reading wrong? No, no, no. I I I think that's right. But the the question is whether that schedule then provides for the full hundred and fifty days uh, that the Supreme Court allows, or whether it requires you to come back and seek agreement and. I have to pull that document up <laughs> from from the district court's docket, see if it's been made public, see uh, if if it so specifies. But I, I would I, I remain of the opinion uh, that so when it when a court issues uh, an administrative stay, that is we've talked about this before. An administrative stay is designed so that your constitutional rights do not become a fait accompli, right? So in other words, if, if what you say is if, if, uh, for example, suppose there's a law or an executive order that's about to go into effect, right? You could imagine a court saying, okay, well, we've decided that this is constitutional and that the law is going to go into effect, uh, but we're going to stay enforcement of our judgment pending your filing of a cert petition in the Supreme Court's resolution of that cert petition so that 
you know, it, it, so that the law doesn't go into effect and then you're stuck before the Supreme Court going, uh, that law shouldn't have gone into effect, right? Like that's the concept of irreparable harm, the idea that it makes the relief you're seeking useless. Um, and, and that's a, that's a fair point. I am surprised that this opinion does not, um, discuss in any way, I'm a little bit surprised, uh, that it does not discuss in any way the fact that some of this information very clearly has already reached the public through the New York Times, right? Um, because part of, because that does impact the irreparable harm analysis, which the court undertook uh, when rejecting uh, Trump's request for injunctive relief, right? And part of part of that argument is, look, if Mazars turns this over, uh, even if it goes to the grand jury, and, and again, the argument is certainly stronger uh, in the Mazars case, right, which which involves the congressional subpoena. Um, the argument is, yeah, yeah, we get it. Congress is supposed to keep this confidential, but you know they're not going to. It will reach the public, and you know you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And and. I never say let's be fair to the president. Um, and I'm not going to say that here, but, but I will say as somebody who has represented civil litigants in the question of disclosure of confidential records, right? Tax returns, medical records, things like that. I've been on both sides of that issue. I, I, I have some sympathy for the argument that says, yeah, like once those documents have been released, They, you know, they're out in the wild. And uh, if a later court says, well, maybe you shouldn't have released those, then, uh, you know, the the harm has been done and and cannot be undone. Um, I I will tell you that uh, the reason Trump has lost on all his requests for injunctive relief uh, is that the court doesn't just that that irreparable harm is not the only inquiry that the court undertakes. Right. You balance the harm to the litigant uh, against the benefit to the public. And also you require the litigant to show a substantial likelihood of success on the merits, right? If your arguments are frivolous and they suck, then no matter how much you would hurt, you would be hurt by it. Like the court's like, well, great. Yeah. You're going to be hurt by it. But like, dude, you're, you're about to get hurt by this because right. your argument's it, terrible. <laughs> they made that argument. They were like, this is presidential harassment. And, yeah. and, and they were talking about, Clinton v. Jones. And they were like, well, yeah, that it's it's that's how that works. Like if you if you if you you get in, if your shit comes out and you're a criminal and you get in trouble and you call that harassment, then okay, it's harassment. Let's chalk it up to harassment. But, you know, don't don't crime. Yeah, well, no, that that's exactly right. So let's let's talk briefly about what happened uh, in the Trump versus Vance case at the Supreme Court. That they essentially said two things that are that have a little bit of tension with with one another. The first is uh, that there are overarching consideration of separation of powers issues, uh, but. We're not going to we're not exactly we're we're not going to quantify what those are. We're just going to say that in general, yeah, um, we want to leave open the idea that uh, the executive branch is different from, you know, a an ordinary private citizen. But when it comes to objecting to a subpoena being issued by a grand jury, all the relief that the Supreme Court granted to Trump uh, in in the Vance case was 
the same relief, the same right to challenge uh, the issuance of a subpoena that an ordinary litigant has. And, and, and let's, let's talk about that super duper quickly. Um, this is, again, this is an issue. I'm, I'm a civil lawyer, not a criminal lawyer, but this is an issue that we see civilly all the time. For example, um, I represent a couple of different uh, medical practices, right? And one of the things you get is you'll get third-party subpoenas from plaintiffs uh, who have been in or or, or uh, in connection with litigation from both plaintiffs and defendants um, who have been in a car accident, right? So, uh, so my guy, uh, my client, a doctor, sees a patient in 2007, and then that person is in a car accident in 2020 and sues somebody else. They're defended by the insurance company. The insurance company issues a subpoena to every doctor he's ever had since the dawn of time, right? And Oftentimes those will come to me and I will, and I will look at it and I'll, and I'll just write like, I will file a motion to quash with the court. If, if the record, if the requests are simple, if it is just, Hey, give us this patient's file, we'll say, okay, we're going to give you everything we have. But if it's a 13 year old patient, right. And we have, we don't, you know, those uh, that was on a, a Commodore 64 and like the floppy disks have melted and you know, you just, you, you write back and you, uh, tell the insurance company, sorry, we don't have those records. Um, and then the insurance company can then decide, well, either we're going to go ahead and demand you produce them, at which point I've got to file a motion to quash that says, look, this would be super duper burdensome for my client who has no connection to this litigation. The records are 13 years old and they're not going to be probative of what, you know, he was seen for hypertension in 2007. That has nothing to do with his broken arm in this car accident leave us alone, go away. And, and that general thought process, right, is also available when a grand jury issues a subpoena, right? It's now, it's a criminal case and not a civil case. So the public interest is higher, right? Um, but, but by the same token, right? Like you could imagine, um, you know, somebody, for example, um, you know, in a criminal investigation, uh, if you issued a request to every internet service provider to search for every document and every website that a potential defendant visited over the past 20 years, right? Like that kind of subpoena would be overly broad, right? It would, the, the, all of those ISPs would be like, look, you've got to at least prove that your defendant used our ISP, right? It reminds me of uh, the Concord management case where the yeah. American lawyers for the Russian Internet Research Agency during discovery were like, well, we're going to need every single source and method for everything that the U.S. intelligence agencies, all of them do back to 1941. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what? So, so that no. <laughs> long-winded story is the kind of objection that the president was raising. And that the Second Circuit said, no, like this is, yes, we we quash cases, we quash subpoenas. Um, <laughs> by the way, they also take the president to task. And thank goodness, like I've been waiting for a court to say that this president does not litigate like ordinary people, right? right. Like the way in which you respond to a subpoena, right, even if it's to a third party, is by filing a motion to quash, not by filing a complaint seeking injunctive relief, and then 
you know, petitioning for a writ of mandamus when you like the the president is a wholesale abusing the courts. And, you know, thank God the Second Circuit pointed out in, in a footnote, yeah. but still, you yeah. know, thank them for, for pointing it out. Um, it, yeah. it the, that's the confinement. I, I I don't think we have time for me to go through the R Enterprises case, um, which is delightful. You can find it online. Um, it is 498 US 292 if you if you want to go read it. Uh, it's a pornography case from the mid 80s. Uh, Ken Starr was the okay, hang on. general. Okay, hang on. All right, hold on. <laughs> Ken Starr and pornography. I actually do want to go through this, but I need to take, <laughs> I need to take a quick break. Can we use, stick with me for another minute? Sure. All right, everybody, hang on. We'll be right back with Ken Starr on some porn. Hey, Daily Beans listeners, it's AG, and this portion of the podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. Everyone needs help from time to time, especially when life is stressful, and it is right now. So if you're struggling with anything that's preventing you from living your best life, I recommend BetterHelp. BetterHelp is not a crisis line, and it is not self-help. It is professional licensed therapy done securely online. They will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in less than 24 hours. As you know, I face my own challenges dealing with PTSD and generalized anxiety and lack of sleep, especially these days, so I know it's important to seek help rather than try to face it alone. BetterHelp's services are available for clients worldwide. They have a broad range of expertise in their network, stuff that might not be available locally in your area. And the best thing about BetterHelp is you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor, and you will get timely, thoughtful responses, and you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change your counselor if you want to. And it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid's available. You can visit their website and read their testimonials, like this one from BetterHelp user SH, who says, Deborah has been able to help me find a way through a lot. She's an amazing listener, and I never feel as though I'm being judged or dissected, only that she cares to help me further my journey of healing. I'm glad to have had the chance to meet her and continue to work with her. So, everybody, visit BetterHelp.com slash Daily Beans. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for Daily Beans listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Daily Beans. Okay, so I've been waiting with bated breath now. <laughs> um, tell me about uh, this. What? <laughs> I don't, I am not aware of this case. So, um... The, the, those listeners who are substantially younger than you and I um, may not remember that in the 1980s, the Reagan administration, everybody connected to it, was engaged in a nationwide freakout over porn. Um, it's it seems very odd. The people versus Larry Flint <laughs> yeah. is a perfect example of this. Exactly right. And so uh, the you know you think of all the crazy stuff Trump has had his DOJ do like the Reagan DOJ was out there um, prosecuting adult bookstores that would ship quote obscene material across state lines, which would then become a federal crime and obscene material meant, you know, videotapes and magazines of the sort that would not even be a tab in Pornhub today. Right. Like, um, uh, and so, that's what this case is involved. This case involved three companies. Uh, lead one is is called R Enterprises. Um, they were owned by a pornographer named Martin Rothstein, right? And Rothstein um, shipped videotapes, uh, pornographic videotapes, uh, through the mails, through, you know, to, like, 
seedy little adult shops in Virginia. And that was all a setup uh, designed to get him to violate the uh, interstate uh, transportation of uh, obscene materials. Um, and and so the grand jury was investigating that. And so w- what happened was um, the uh, the grand jury issued a bunch of subpoenas uh, to try and figure out um, who this pornographer was and what he was doing. And so they sent to uh, remember the crime is from is shipping from New York, which is where our enterprises was located into Virginia. Um, they sent a request to for business records to a New York distributor right at, at you know one of the like old Times square kind of shops uh that sold uh, our enterprise products and uh martin rothstein and uh and and the uh new york distributor called model magazine distributors inc moved to quash right they said look this can't possibly be relevant. This is so overbroad uh, because, quote, the grand jury subpoena sought a variety of corporate books and records and copies of 193 videotapes that uh, model had shipped to retailers in the Eastern District of Virginia. Um, yeah, I, you, you wonder where those 193 videotapes would would wind up. I could tell you stories ba- ba- back in my uh uh, my big firm law firm days, but that's just going to have to wait for another episode. <laughs> anyway, punchline was the Supreme court. This is a nine Oh opinion, mind you, right? That there is a concurrence and Scalia didn't join in part three B, but nine Oh, right. The Supreme court said a federal district court can quash or modify a grand jury subpoena under uh, federal rule of criminal procedure 17C, uh, if that compliance would be, quote, unreasonable or oppressive. And this is not unreasonable or oppressive. Grand juries are uh, must be given wide latitude in order to ev- investigate, right, because their task is to figure out whether you've committed a crime. And that brings us back to President Trump, who made the wildly implausible and, in fact, ridiculous argument that because the New York Times article said the grand jury was impaneled because of Michael Cohen, you're only entitled to ask for stuff related to Michael Cohen. And this tax information isn't related to Michael Cohen. And literally every court that has heard this argument is like, the fuck are you talking about? Like, uh, A, you have no idea what the grand jury is is listening to, right? Like, you have no idea what the grand jury is thinking about. Uh, and... Uh, even if that's what they were thinking about, like they're entitled the, the the what you are entitled to do as a potential criminal target of an investigation is object when the grand jury says uh, uh, has some kind of evidence that they are targeting you personally, that they're going after you in an unreasonable manner that that is unconnected to a plausible investigation. And outside of that, like. Go pound sand. That would have actually been a better argument for for him to take because it's, you know, because it's New York, you know. Yeah, of course. But but again, it It would be wrong. The threshold for showing that kind of animus is is super high. And and in fact, the Supreme Court points out, right, this is the Section 3B that Scalia didn't join of this opinion. He didn't dissent from it. It's kind of weird. Um, But uh, it. In which the in which the, the the court in this R Enterprises case 
evaluates the fact the 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 reasonable response back in these cases in which a litigant says, okay, you're saying I have to present a narrowly tailored objection on overbreath, but grand juries are secret. I don't know what the hell they're investigating. So how could I show overbreath? Good argument. Here's what the Supreme Court says. It seems unlikely that a challenging party who does not know the general subject matter of the grand jury's investigation, no matter how valid that party's claim, will be able to make the necessary showing that compliance would be unreasonable. After all, a subpoena recipient cannot put his whole life before the court in order to show that there is no crime to be investigated. Fair. So, consequently, a court may be justified in a case where unreasonableness is alleged in requiring the government to reveal and then I'm just going to bracket in camera, that is just to the judge, the general subject of the grand jury's investigation before requiring the challenging party to carry its burden of persuasion. So in other words, the the law has for 35 years taken that into account and said, look, if this is a close case and you think they are engaged in a totally ridiculous fishing expedition, then Point that out. Point out that double bind. And we as the court have the authority to, to require the, 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 the uh, prosecutors uh, to put in an in-camera hearing that is confidentially just to the court uh, what the subject matter is. And then the court can decide what to do based on that, right? Can give you specific guidance or could look at it and be like, okay, well now we know what it's about. And by the way, this is definitely not overbroad. So all, all of that is. But a... in this, in this case though, they didn't even do that in camera. Nope. I mean, I mean, Vance came out and said, here's what, here's one thing we're looking at. Okay. Here's another. Oh, and these are the other two things we're looking at. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's not overly broad to we didn't even have to come and, and sneaky sneak, you know, handshake with a list of things we're investigating with the judge in our, in the palm of the hand. So it's it, 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 I, for, personally, if I were the president's lawyers or if I was, you know, if they were smart at all, they would have gone with the other argument, not the overbroad argument, but the biased. They hate me argument, because if if his intention here is not to win because he can't and just to delay at least he wouldn't have looked like such a fucking idiot <laughs> i i endorse that a hundred percent i i will tell you the the harassment argument right is a bad it kind of makes me think he actually thought he could win i you know Bill Consovoy, again, like every time I'm on the show, we, we have a like revolving carousel of who's the worst lawyer in the world. Um, I, I continue to stand by Jay Sekulow, uh, but like Bill Consovoy is like, you know, number nine with a bullet and like rising up the charts. Like he he's done some amazingly stupid stuff. Um, and it's it's possible that like they thought despite the fact that no other lawyer agreed with them, um, that they, they had a chance in this case. I will tell you that has been Donald Trump's MO dating back to the very first thing of his that I ever analyzed. And that was the USFL, right? Where Donald Trump came in, uh, and wrecked an alternate uh, summer spring summer football league, uh, thinking that he was going to win an antitrust case against the NFL. Uh, he 
did but won $1 in nominal damages, which was trebled to $3 on appeal. Uh, oh. uh, trebled to $3 uh, yeah, uh, uh, because of uh, uh, the attorney's fees. But you know, with the recent revelations, that's actually really hard for him to pay. <laughs> yeah, he now owes $421 million and $3. Um, but yeah, how does he get to vote? Oh, he's not a felon. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's. Uh, yeah. Yet. <laughs> no, <laughs> but but yeah, like in that case, every lawyer on the planet was telling him, um, don't bring this case in New York in front of a jury full of Jets and Giants fans. Why not bring that in Baltimore? <laughs> <laughs> where the NFL team was moved out under cover of darkness in the middle of the night and they hated the NFL. But Trump had his pocket lawyers who were yes men who told him what he wanted to hear. And uh, Wait, and was this 98, 99? Oh, no, this was 80, 85, 86. Uh, oh, when they when they took the Colts out. Exactly. Uh, I was thinking the Cleveland Browns, Baltimore, but they. No, 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 no. Yeah, that, oh, we were yeah, bad yeah. guys in that. This was. Uh, <laughs> That's this a was different show. Six. We are going to do sports talk on our next uh, episode of the Daily Sports with AG. That was an excellent KBBL. <laughs> Morning all day, every day. Uh, weather summer's over. It's no, it's no longer hot dog season. Back to the action. Uh, I love coming on your show. Oh, I appreciate that. One last question before I before I let you go here. Uh, speaking of abuse of the court here with Trump, do you think he'll he'll go on bonk just for, for a little extra delay, or is that a stupid bad idea? Um, let me pull up the details of the briefing schedule and get, and get back to you on that. Uh, okay, because it 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 will depend on that precise language. And again, you and I are reacting. Uh, you know, within an hour of the opinion coming down. So uh, I, I want to go back and look at that document. All right. You text me and let me know. <laughs> um, and uh, finally, before before you get out of here, I just want your top line take on what uh, the Department of Justice filed today in the Flynn case, admitting that they, I'm, I'm sorry, accidentally changed or added dates to the FBI, official FBI notes of Peter Strzok and Andy McCabe, uh, by, uh, they say what happened was there's, we're super sorry, uh, about this, but what happened was, <laughs> you know, uh, in the Eastern district, <laughs> yeah, in the Eastern district of Missouri, here's what we did. See, we were, we were, we were just sort of guesstimating what dates those notes were took. We put them on there with sticky notes and we forgot to take them off when we made copies to submit in an official court filing. So I'm going to say a couple of things to this. The first is the attachment showing the documents with the altered dates was provided by Norm Eisen uh, in connection, it, it directly submitted to court. Um, you can, and that has been made public. Uh, I think we even linked it in one of our show notes. Um, so mm -hmm. you can find that, you can look at the documents. As somebody who grew up uh, as a little baby lawyer in a gigantic law firm, uh, having to prepare filings and get them out the door by midnight, uh, I've Xeroxed uh, an awful lot of stuff that has, you know, tags and post-it notes or whatever. Just, just look at the documents. That does not appear to be credible. You do not see any of the telltale signs of... Uh, you know, the little ridge, sticky note yeah, ridges. Sticky notes, right? Like those, even in good copiers, 
tell my age, I said Xeroxed. Even on good copiers, those things show up, right? So that's yeah. kind of point one. Seems like they're full of shit. Point two, who the fuck cares? You've, you, you've submitted them to a court as real. Well, again, in a, in a, yeah, I, it, look, you're right. Like I, I'm, I'm inclined, like I, I typically want to come down on the side of like, let's not infer anything beyond like lawyer administrative incompetence. Cause you know, you get kind of down to the wire and you do things like forget to check pagination or a sentence is duplicated or, you know, the page numbers are off or whatever, like that sort of stuff happens that this was not, this is not a million document case. Right. No. And these dates aren't inadvertent. They're trying to expand the date range to include the Biden knew when he did not. Yeah, co- co- correct. There is there is no reason to think that that would have been inadvertent. Um, and I, I will point out uh, Norm Eisen, uh kind of my exact opposite. Right. Uh, ex- I should say interest of full disclosure, former partner of mine. We were partners at Zuckerman Spader together. Um, uh, he is. Uh, sober, measured, reflective, scholarly, not the kind of person that would come on and uh, tell porn jokes on your show. Um, and w- and when Norm Eisen files a piece of paper that says, looks like the government has forged documents in this case, um, that's, that's different than me saying, you know, Trump is a big lying sack of shit. Like we all know that. Um, courts take notice when a staid conservative small C, you know, by temperament conservative uh, lawyer says that. And then when that turns out to be 100% accurate. So, mm, uh, and especially with Gleason's, uh, when we, when we listened to the Flynn hearing Gleason was like, uh, these inconsequential, uh, tidbits unearthed every other week. It's like playing whack-a-mole, uh, at these administrative tidbits. It's, it's, ridiculous and and here we are now learning uh that they were falsified though though i don't know if you dug into the right wing's alternative universe responding to that oral argument um but the the vitriol that they have piled on on judge gleason um you know somebody with 200 years of public service and uh right right of center right like i mean not 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 a crazy leftist. Um, it, it was, I think, illustrative of uh, just how effective he was in in uh, in making points like that uh, to Judge Sullivan. And uh, the and, and again, you know, rap. Everybody knows where my bias is. Uh, to the best of my ability, in just evaluating Gleason as a lawyer and an interlocutor. Um, devastatingly effective and the and the attacks on him are uh, are desperate and crazy and wrong and um and particularly the attacks on judge sullivan are are preposterous but you all knew that already yeah yeah well and it's going to be interesting to see how they respond to this given klein smith pleading guilty and uh, under uh, criminal indictment for changing an email in the carter page fisa case right um so this is (laughs) it's it's good to see this because one of the things that you learn as a little baby lawyer taking uh oral advocacy classes and stuff like that and reading articles and you know and i i 
did all that, um, is that, that it is very difficult to keep a sustained lie together. Right. And so that's, that's why some of the tips on cross-examining witnesses in particular and litigating cases in general is, um, cast a wide net, right. Uh, keep, keep them talking, ask even in areas that, you know, may seem tangential to your, your main area, because at some point, like the human brain cannot keep all of the details necessary to keep a, 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 a multifaceted lie straight in their head. And they'll say something that contradicts something else that they've said. And it, it's been frustrating watching the Trump administration get away with bald faced lies for four years. Um, maybe, you know, uh, maybe it's all unraveling at the same time. Who knows? This bus doesn't have enough wheels. Exactly right. Right. Uh, All right. Well, thank you so much. Everybody check out Opening Arguments. It's an incredible podcast. My friend, real life lawyer, Andrew Torres. I appreciate you talking these things out with me today. Always. Thanks for having me on. All right, everybody stick around right after this. We will have the good news block. So stay with us. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Daily Beans. This segment of the podcast is brought to you by Caliper CBD. Life is super stressful right now, especially right now. We all need to practice self-care, but taking care of yourself shouldn't be stressful. It shouldn't cause anxiety to practice self-care. And the great thing about CBD is it helps you feel better without having to make drastic changes to your health, to your routine. So if, if you haven't tried CBD, I recommend it so much. It's helped me feel less anxious and more calm. I've been able to sleep easier, and it's helped me feel less sore after long workouts. My favorite thing about Caliper CBD specifically is that they've introduced a better way to consume CBD. It's an easy-to-use powder. And unlike oils, Caliper CBD powder is completely tasteless and mixes easily in any food or drink. It's got precisely 20 milligrams in each packet, too, so you'll never question how much CBD you're taking. Uh, I like to put some in my morning coffee or in a protein shake after my workout. It's awesome. It's clinically proven also that you absorb 450% more CBD with Caliper CBD powder compared to tinctures. That is so much more. It's That's incredible. And Caliper gives you all the benefits of CBD in just 15 minutes. It's so fast acting. That's about twice as fast as CBD oil. And Caliper is totally THC-free, so you get all the benefits of CBD without any intoxicating or mind-altering effects. You can stay on top of your game. Caliper is made with all natural, non-GMO ingredients. No fillers, no added chemicals, no artificial flavors. So take care of yourself, but also make it easy to do that with Caliper CBD. Get 20% off your first order when you use promo code DAILYBEANS at trycaliper.com slash dailybeans. You can try Caliper CBD risk-free for 30 days, and if you don't love it, they will give you a full refund. So that's trycaliper.com slash dailybeans. And don't forget promo code DAILYBEANS means for 20% off your first order. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Thank you so much for submitting your good news stories. I'm so glad we've made it to the good news portion of this show. <laughs> it's been a lot of bad news today. Um, and it's not going to slow down. Like I said, it's not going to slow down. So if you have good news stories you want to share, personal or political, or if you have a correction or a quarantine confession, all you got to do is go to dailybeanspod.com and click contact and send that in. You will see the little drop down menu and you can pick what you want to send it. Quarantine confession. Um, correction, good news story. It's all right there. It's easy to do. That's dailybeanspod.com. First up from OMG, I'm so excited I cannot contain myself. Someone help my cat. That's the name there. Pronouns she and her. (laughs) Uh, She says, 
I just got a call offering me a new job. I cannot even describe how ecstatic I am. For the past 15 months, I have worked in a law office full of Trumplicans who not only have taken the vid, not taken the COVID seriously, even after three of us support staff catching it, and an extraordinary hostile paralegal, I have been in hell. Uh, I'm going to be getting a small pay raise, a dollar an hour. But what's making me the most excited is that I get to, it's going to be full-time work from home. Yay, no more exposure to COVID idiots. And the health insurance benefits are amazing. Just because you ladies are fucking essential, I'm attack, attaching pics of the house cats for you to get all oogly over because AG loves the pet pics. Go ahead and add them to the newsletter. Thank you. Oh, it's a gray kitty. Oh, Gail, it looks like Grayskull. Look at the baby. That looks like a boy. That looks like it's got a boy face. I don't know, though. We don't know how he identifies. Next up, from Annie, pronouns she and her. I've been listening since the kitchen table days. I love the Daily Beans. I used to listen at night, but always fell asleep. <laughs> That's why they call us the shit show lullaby, Annie. So now I wait until morning and listen while I walk my two pups at the park along the Mississippi. The good news is I've lost weight, and my dogs love getting outside. Plus, I get to hear the whole show. Keep up the good work, AG and crew. Love this, and I have already voted blue. Thank you, Annie. Wonderful news. <gasps> There's the doggo. Doggo pictures. And the dog in a bag. I love dog in a bag. Mm -mm. Oh, those are nice plants, too. We'll send all this out in the newsletter so you can see the, the pod pets. Next up. Oh, wait. There's another dog. Oh. Oh, my God. Okay. I know. I'm... I'm swooning over the doggies. Next up, confession. Uh-oh, confession from anonymous pronoun she and her. Bless me, Leguminati, for I have sinned. I may have been in quarantine too long, but I kind of think that Neil Gorsuch is hot. <laughs> I wish Jordan were here. Oh, I miss her so much. She'd probably agree with you. He's no McBabe, but still hot. I thank you, Bean Queens, Beans Queens, AG, for absolution. Uh, I will go forth and text bank as penance. Good, good penance. Yes. Watch five Rachel Maddows and text bank. Next up, another confession. Very anonymous. Pronouns she and her. I've been married for over 40 years, or maybe just 39. No clues here. Let's just say a long time. I used to make a lot more money than him and helped him finish his education. I used to travel for work and became an absentee voter long ago. I was a Dem, and he mostly voted Republican. I never reminded him to vote, so my vote didn't get balanced out. <laughs> he did catch on eventually, but that's not my confession. I will confess that in 2016, he voted for Clinton. I'm not supposed to tell anyone. So proud of him. Here's the big confession. I am retired, and I manage the finances, all of it. Where we invest, shopping, paying bills, etc. This year, I've been saving grocery money by eating mostly vegan, Beans are cheaper than meat, and I grow a lot of vegetables. Zucchini, anyone? Also, saved on entertainment because, you know, no theater, no restaurants. And I've been transferring the extra money from the budget to various candidates. About $100 a week um, when the garden cooperates. Ratatouille, stuffed squash, bean and veg soup, etc. I figure I earn that money by being the cook <laughs> and letting him control the remote, our current entertainment. One day, I looked at the vacation savings and donated it. <laughs> <laughs> all of it. We're not allowed to go anywhere, right? <laughs> I can start replenishing it after the election or next vacation. We'll be camping in the backyard. <laughs> Don't tell. Dog is definitely not telling. She likes us home. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. Thank you for sending that A super anonymous person. Next up, confession and good news from the mom who doesn't like to play. Pronoun she and her. PS4. 
Best in uh, PS4, best investment ever made during quarantine. I haven't had a console in a while. I forgot how much I enjoyed video games. We've played Sonic, Mega Man, and Lego, Avengers as a family, and Fallout 4 at night has kept me sane. I am now one of those moms people derided in the early 2000s, plopping my son in front of the TV and walking away. But damn it, I'm finally getting work done. Like finally addressing my borderline personality disorder. I started seeing a counselor virtually over BetterHelp.com and it's going well. Oh, that's so great. Um, it's still a work in progress. BPD means my temper is just higher all the time. I'm constantly fighting my intense perspective and strong emotions and sometimes it's too much. I gave more than one snarky fuck you very much. My coordinator lectured me. I told him to shove it. And now I'm writing postcards to voters. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for that. I, I love this. Thank you so much. And I'm, I'm glad it's going well with BetterHelp. Next up, from Anonymous, pronouns she and her. like to bring up two things. One, the woman who confessed about her big toenails last week should file them into big points, and then she could be like a raptor. <laughs> Number two, uh, I am immunocompromised, and I haven't been out of the house but five times since February. I've been having a horrid time with my mental health for a while now. I'm bipolar, trending towards depression, and the depression has consumed me for a year or so. I'm disabled because of the mental and physical health as well. I live with my parents, and my mom has been really um, emphatic about me staying home, and she's right. Anyway, the depression is getting um, a, a tad better. Not much, but a titch. Uh, I found you all around January, and I have to thank you for being a lighthouse in the darkness. I have very few lighthouses, but you talk about politics like I do, although I swear more. And uh, you make me laugh, and that's rare. Anyway, you and the happy hours have been a lighthouse, and, and that is my good news. I love you guys, and although I miss Jordan dearly, I'm loving Amy and Dana. Thank you, AG, for being my emotional support pundit. Love ya. Here's my beautiful podcast, Stan Lee. <laughs> He's hovering over me in bed trying to get treats. He is a handsome boy. Let's see. Oh, he is hovering. That's a hovering cat. Oh, he's so adorable. Oh, thank you, Anonymous. I appreciate that. And thank you for being there for me. You really... It's... I. One day I'll, I'll tell y'all, maybe in the book, about how bad it got and, and how y'all saved me. So thank you. And again, we'll be back tomorrow. Um, it's going to be a big show. And then, of course, we have the happy hour at four for patrons on Friday. And then we have a, a happy hour brunch that we're adding for our overseas friends. Um, and that's at 11 Pacific time on Saturday. So thank you all. Thank you all for writing in. Send your good news stories to uh, dailybeanspod.com and click contact. I really appreciate it. Until tomorrow, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been AG, and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>